I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club, episode 31. We've had a brief hiatus. That's right, that's right. But it's like getting back on a bike, Billy. Yeah. Like actually, <laughs> you don't forget. I- interestingly, I have forgotten to ride a bike several times. <laughs> I've been taught how to ride a bike about the three old, or four the old times. It does not ring true in your it case. It doesn't. It doesn't. And, wow. I, and I feel personally affronted by it. <laughs> every time people say that, I'm like, is there something? <laughs> it's, it's something about you, maybe. Yeah, no, I've, I've been taught by three or four different people to ride a bike. Um, I can do it with trainer wheels. Okay. With trainer wheels, I'm fine. But it's just the balance. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so this, this pod has, a, has training wheels on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, we've been away. Uh, we had a wild weekend in Newcastle. Oh, I know, I know. So that, that took the place <laughs> of the podcast. Um, uh, we got yelled at by a lot of people from cars. It did. And people on sidewalks. It did. Yeah. It's so, Sydney 20 years ago. Yep, yeah, absolutely. For, for good nil. <laughs> absolutely. Um, sorry to our Newcastle fans, if you exist. Um, let's... Let's get into the podcast, though. We, we've got a couple of big tentpole shows to look at. Absolutely. Um, They've been building up. It's, and in right. a way, it's, it's been good having a two-week break because now we have, we have nothing but hits. That's right. That's it's right. Just, it's just All the hits. All high-profile, big releases, these ones. It's like if we were Madonna, this would just be 1984 <laughs> to 89. Greatest hits. It's just greatest hits. So why don't you take us away with The Serpent? <laughs> so The Serpent is a new crime drama slash serial slash procedural uh, slash expose of the hippie trail. Mm. Uh, was, a, lot, a lot of slashes in there. there there's a lot of slashes. It's very slash centric. <laughs> there's a lot of slashes in the TV show too. Oh, <laughs> only two. But yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> so this was actually a, a co-production between the BBC and Netflix, which mm-hmm. are interesting allies. Now mm. you're seeing increasingly interesting alliances here, and I think this is this show is quite symptomatic of the modern TV landscape in some yeah. in some respects, which we'll discuss in a little bit. Do tell. <laughs> it's an eight-part limited series. And it is uh, based on the, the crimes of serial killer, now forgive my pronunciation, Charles Sobrage, mm-hmm. who was accused of murdering tourists we in the to, we mid-70s. Seem, we seem to go down the true crime path a lot. <laughs> it is just because there's a lot out there, not because we're obsessed with it. Well, we circle around it's both. it. It's both. But I, in some ways, I think this is really what's... This is what putting Netflix executives' kids through college. Okay. <laughs> The you know, true, true crime trust fund. It is the true crime. It's the YA. Yep. Yep. There's, a, there's a few, you know, wells they go back to, and this yep. is clearly one of them. Yep. Um, and the series is also notable for starring the French Algerian movie star uh, Tahar Rahim, okay. and he plays the lead role of, of Charles Sobrage. Are you a fan of? Uh, I I don't know. What's Rahim's he, work. What's he been in? Most famous for the. Um, I can see you. You've got Wikipedia open in front of me there. <laughs> well, most famous for the the movie A Prophet. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Of course. So he played yeah. the lead role in, okay. in A Prophet, as well as a couple of other mm. um, Whereas roles. this show could be called Prophet. Ah, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> See what I did there? Well, Prophet, Prophet. Yeah. Uh, the different spellings. Don't yeah. try. Don't try. <laughs> don't try and improve on that. <laughs> they homonyms, synonyms, synonyms. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. The moment you said synonym. Let's just get back to it. So, synonym. <laughs> this is also notable uh, for... I suppose it's it's location shooting. A lot of it yep. is shot in or is uh, set in Thailand. And that's very, that's very evident, isn't it, the location? That's stuff. right. This yep. might be one of the last series oh. shot pre-pandemic. True. So most of the shooting, True. location shooting was done in Thailand in mm. March 2020. So, right. So really, it's in some ways, this is a real calling card of the yep. pre-pandemic world. Yep. The rest was actually shot in England. So there's a couple of sh- scenes that are shot to, re- to recreate certain Asian locations. Mm. Um, and they're actually all done virtually like on sound through stages. a soundstage through England. Mm. And that's actually quite noticeable when, Interesting. Yeah. when you come that, to the end of this pilot. That does make sense, actually. Yep. Um, so 
I found this very compelling, actually. Mm. I thought this was a... Although it's... I suppose Netflix is going to this this true crime mm. well so often. It's rare where there's a something unique about, about it in some ways. And I think the dramatisation of this, mm. rather than a documentary works i don't think this would have worked quite as well as a documentary in a lot of respects i agree i mean yes i found to start off with i wasn't that engaged by this but it really drew me in and by the end i was probably more engaged than i have been by a lot of true crime stuff we've watched it's interesting isn't it i mean it's at first i thought the fictionalization felt more like reenactments. Mm. At first, it felt like watching a series of reenactments because mm. the style is so diffuse, isn't yes. it? So it's set in the seventies, and it has all the diffuseness of a seventies film. So yes. this reminded me a lot of a Robert Altman film. So Robert Altman, seventies director. Nearly all of his films in the seventies are ensemble pieces, and they're nearly always about collective momentum that comes undone. And that's what this that's almost the way in which this works. I mean, it works better, I think, in some ways as a period piece mm. for the most part, with the serial killers, this couple who target tourists as a threat around the edges. So in the same way that Altman's films often have this antisocial or terrifying potential that lurks around the edges of their collective momentum, the serial killers fulfill that function here. So among other things, I thought that meant it really was shot like a 70s film. Mm. There's lots of long tracking shots, lots of really diffuse ensemble scenes, zooms and pans. And the, the situation it's dealing with is so diffuse already. I mean, we're in the world of backpacking, which is very diffuse. It's the tropics, so everything seems porous. Heaps of people are into New Age. There's a lot of discussion of New Age philosophy. The killers come and go in very elusive ways. So... It's, it's almost like watching a 70s period piece or a 70s ensemble drama in which a serial killer gradually emerges. And I thought that yes. that was really compelling. Like it was almost like watching a great lost 70s film mm. by the end. Mm. There's a lot of great separate yeah, narrative strands that, that gradually coalesce around the, the serial killer Charles Sobraj. And in some ways there seems to be a serial killing dyad as well where his, his wife is a real enabler here as well. And I think it's interesting that you describe this as... Uh, I suppose, a 70s period piece because this was also the era where the serial killer really came to the fore. Mm. And we've been watching a lot of serial killer shows about about America in the 1970s mm. and, and the particular stalkers that, I suppose, preyed on these women. And also what enabled them or what, what enabled them this pool of victims, in some ways the mm. counterculture, the I guess, deconstruction of contemporary mores at the time. And in mm. some ways this is an interesting parallel to that as well because mm. this is this is in some respects a, a sort of I suppose doppelganger of that mm. in it's not it doesn't take place in America but it's it's similarly inflected through the counterculture in some ways and, and both most... the crime both the criminal offending and also the nature of the victims and in some ways mm. I think in, in an interesting way um, Charles Sobrage and his his kind of we might say his lack of empathy and his his serial killing in some ways is depicted as another type of counterculture, another type of lifestyle choice mm. in some ways. So you mm. have a lot of people who are choosing quite diffu- quite different you know, cultural orientations in some ways. There's sort of a portmanteau of different cultural orientations that who run through this this backpacker hostel that he runs. And in some ways, he's, mm. I don't know, it's, it's, there's almost some interesting thematic parallel constructed between his choice of lifestyle and those of his victims in some ways. And I think mm. it's... 
this show's strongest when it focuses on that rather than just the profit motive behind his offending. I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, exactly. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can read um, the rise of serial killing in the 70s, but there's definitely a spatial element. So on the one hand, serial killers, usually men, feeling displaced from house and home, displaced from the structures that once enabled them. But also there's a new kind of diffuseness of space in the 1970s, the rise of malls, the rise of postmodern architecture, hippies, countercultures becoming more mobile in their in the way in which they interact that kind of enables serial killing too. So exactly. So what you have here is almost an intensification of that spatial situation, right? Because it's all expatriates. Mm. Like most of the people we see are expatriates who have gone overseas to immerse that countercultural momentum in the tropics. And yeah, it's interesting. Like the two the two scenes, went, yeah, as you said, their motivation is ostensibly profit. They target tourists and dispose of them for money. But the way in which they do so and the kind of particular relish they seem to take in doing so has more of a serial killing element to it. But the two situations where they encounter their victims have a real collective feel. They're like happenings or parties. It's mm. when the series, that ensemble feel peaks so when that ensemble atmosphere peaks at the serial killer strike, and there's one really one of the really poignant, well, the, all the victims are poignant, all three of them, but one of them is a woman who is they discover is travelling and is about to join a monastery and become a Buddhist nun, and she has a whole lot of money she's going to contribute to the monastery. So it's almost like that countercultural trajectory, going to Southeast Asia, joining a monastery is abruptly cut short by her encounter with this psychopath. Yes. So that, that, that's a really big part of it. I, I found the ending, like, really affecting. Yeah. So just, just because it emerges so gradually and so organically from this tapestry or this fabric that the director sets up, the ending is really chilling, mm. partly because of, I guess, the structure of the episode as well. Mm. Like, we're always moving forward and back. I mean, I think as well, like, you have such enormous empathy for the victim here. Mm. Um, the victim is constructed as really one of the major characters mm. of this of this series. Mm. It's um, incredibly powerful performance by mm. the actress as well. Mm. It imbues her with a real sense of charisma. Real subjectivity, um, yeah. But also, I suppose, a slight ambivalence about her path. So mm. she's obviously going to um, to give up material possessions, but she mm. also wants to experience the kind of last-minute hedonism of mm. living a kind of countercultural mm. lifestyle. Mm. And he really preys on that. Mm. And I think probably... You might say one of the weaknesses of this show is the blankness or the the affectlessness of of Sobraj himself. He's a kind of void around which the narrative sort of spins. But I think as you kind of suggested that it kind of presents the emergence of serial killing as a kind of spatial phenomenon yeah. in a way that I mean at the same time, I mean, his blankness and the diffuseness of the show I think works really well to evoke a crime that it seems nobody at the time could quite discern. No. Nobody could quite get their head around it at the time. So watching it, you don't always feel like you have the benefit of hindsight. You feel like you're immersed in a crime that was sprawling and diffuse and, and kind of indiscernible at the time in a yeah. way that I found really creepy. I think that's I think I suppose that's where I was leading to. I found that blankness mm. somewhat disarming at first, and then mm. I found it a little bit boring, but then it actually gradually became imbued, imbued with a kind of deeper, darker meaning, especially as he preyed on that that girl who had mm. such, I suppose, optimistic, um, selfless motives. Mm. And his, there was such a great 
dichotomy between his worldview and hers yeah, that exactly. really bounced off each other. And it was a really horrific moment where she's immobilised at the end and can hear everything he's planning to do. That scene is really, yeah. is really confronting. Yeah. It's really a, confronting. It's a fantastic uh. tableau at the end and a really, mm. really eerie sense of... Um, yeah, dehumanisation that occurs in that last scene. Absolutely. So, I mean, I thought this was almost like a really well-planned and well-structured film, like a miniature yeah. film. So I'm, I'm definitely in for this. And as you said, I think it's, it's a really interesting indication of where Netflix might go next. Yeah. With its, I mean, if Netflix is moving from true crime documentaries to true crime dramatisations, I mean, in a way, the shows we've seen like the uh, Cecil Hotel... Um, that one, when you watch it further, is so sprawling and brings in so much irrelevant information that it's effectively driving towards fictionalisation. Yes. Like the desire to move beyond the mere facts of the case yes. and include something closer to fictionalisation. So this, this is maybe a bit of a trend we're seeing in the Netflix true crime yeah. documentary. But I think this also suits the Netflix house style in some ways. Yes. It's, it's transborder, the cast is mm. international... Um, it, it has that sense of globalised, the globalised culture which Netflix can mm. service in a way that maybe other mm. production houses mm. and distribution houses can't. At the same time, though, it also culminates this sense we were talking about a couple of weeks ago that this new wave of Netflix crime series is less drone-centric. So the, <laughs> yes. sen- the sense of space here... No is, drones here. I mean, I know, I know it's a period drama, but the sense of space is completely inimical to the objective surveillance of the drone. It's all about that immersion yes. in a diffuse and displaced yeah. you know, a version of events. I think, though, for a period piece, and I know it's difficult to shoot period pieces and they necessarily need mm. to be more enclosed, mm. it does have an incredible sense of place. Oh, and, absolutely. And absolutely. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it attracts in the sense of place, but rather the sense of place is less contained than it normally is in a Netflix drama. It's more sprawling. It looks like they were using diopters or whatever that 70s effect is like the, the yeah. it looks granular yeah. it looks like celluloid film yeah it it's very beautifully shot uh, it's aside from a couple of missteps at the end with the cgi but uh, it seems no. unavoidable i mean no. how else are they going to shoot these these globe-trotting netflix series in the pandemic age absolutely resorting to this so. i mean yeah so look i do i do think you know my final perspective on this it, it, it was it reminded me uncannily of watching an Altman film or a 70s ensemble piece in which you do have this sense of collectivity, this sense of the counterculture as a group, an ensemble, yeah. a shared voice, yeah. but with something sinister lurking around the fringes, something, yeah. some psychopathic potential that's also opened up or enabled by that more diffuse mm-hmm. space, which here, in a way, all that the character who plays Sabraj has to do is just embody that. Yes, that's or right. Or personify that. It doesn't have to, he doesn't have to be a character. He's like a potential, a threat around the edges of the action. Yeah. So I, I was sceptical at first. At first I thought this is like a reenactment, but I came around and I thought it was really remarkable. So I'm, I'm a hard in. Did it make you nostalgic for your backpacking days and your hosteling days? Wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I think that backpacking is about as far as possible from a Billy experience as you could have. I can't believe we backpacked across Europe. I can't believe the hostels we stayed in, the bathrooms we stayed in. But it, it, it does capture, though, one thing it does capture, I mean, so much of what makes true crime eerie is the sense of contingency. Yes. If someone had made a phone call five minutes later, if someone's car hadn't broken down on a particular traffic island. So that contingency is always a part of true crime. But... 
backpacking is always driven by serendipity. Yes. By the people you meet along the way, the small connections you meet. I was um I went out with my uh, aunt last night, my aunt who we all call the Dork, our Dork, and she's had these American friends for as long as I can remember. Like they were a part of my childhood. We always talk about them, and I always assumed they'd met while working. She worked in Silicon Valley. But it turns out they'd been on a beach in Baja, California one afternoon, struck up a conversation with a guy who then randomly introduced them. So these fixtures in her life just came from the serendipity Mm. of travel. So I think this series, there's something about the way it converges the kind of gothic contingency of true crime with the utopian serendipity of backpacking (laughs) that's really unsettling. Yes, That's so unsettling. Especially because the victims initially think their encounter with the serial killer is serendipitous. Yes, that's they right. They think they're so lucky that's to right. have met this guy. They've and discovered the mythical kind of expat local slash local. Exactly. Can exactly. show them the scene. They've met the person. Enter person- the new world of the... Yes. The kind of vicariously. It's like they've met the personification of what their trip was meant to be. Yes. And then, which makes it doubly horrific when things turn around. For that reason, it reminded me a bit of The Beach, which I watched recently, yeah, the, it, the Danny Boyle film. It, it definitely had that, that sense of the transient yeah. nature of backpacking and the, the radical contingencies that it can yeah. occur. And the weird, there. the weird people you meet yeah. along the way. Yeah. But that was, yeah, the backpacking stuff, having backpacked, that, that was eerie. So am I correct in saying, Billy, that the serpent in... The dorm room experience out. Well, as you know, we have this... For many years, we had this idea that we should check into a backpacking hostel in Sydney just for the pleasure of leaving it again. So intense for some of our experiences in Europe. But yeah, I'm in with the... um in with the, the TV series, but yeah, out with the, the backpack. The dorms. The dorms. I'm, I'm a hard in for this as yeah, well. Yeah, fantastic. I it was excellent. I think one of the best we've seen in a while. Okay, on to our next series for the week. Well, you've seen us, Billy. Now it's time to watch... Them. Them. Um, so... <laughs> Them is a television special by John McNamara about a sleeper cell of 12-foot-tall, hydra-headed, glow-in-the-dark aliens who communicate exclusively in high-pitched screams that go undercover in the city of Los Angeles. Partially true. Yes. Partial credit. Wait, sorry, sorry, sorry. This is the 2007 series, then. So we'll go back to the, uh, sorry, sorry, the 2021 series. Okay, um, okay, so Them, so basically the way I'd think about Them is it's it's kind of a response to American Horror Story. So American Horror Story is the horror anthology series par excellence, for better or for worse. Um, And it has dealt with race in various seasons, but for the most part it's been focused on white characters and it's dealt with a kind of white lineage of gothic yeah. literature and horror. So They're recycling the classic the, the classic, the classic tropes. tropes, the classic exactly. genres, each one's a different exactly. genre. Exactly. So, look, them is a kind of, I guess, an effect, and and on the one hand is an attempt to redress that. It's the first, well, the pilot is the pilot of the first season in what's intended to be an anthology series. Mm. So the actual title of this is Them Covenant. So Covenant is the first. Oh, okay. I didn't know this was subtitled. The first season. Covenant. Um, It's created by Little Marvin, executive produced by Lena Waithe. So on the one hand, that's partly the lineage of Them, the American horror story styled resurgence of anthology horror Mm. um on the other hand this is clearly indebted to get out yes the films of jordan peele and the particular way in which jordan peele revived but also revised suburban horror as a black genre so it's worth saying going into it um there's been a fair amount of controversy in some quarters about this series we've only seen the pilot or i've only seen the pilot 
Apparently the series descends into a certain amount of torture porn later on. There's some really intense violence that have led some viewers to criticise it as being not aimed at black viewers or about black black degradation as a, I guess, a spectacle for white viewers. So I understand where that's coming from. We're just going to speak to the pilot here today um, and talk about that. I think this is derivative in some ways and not always impressive, but I think what it's trying to do, I thought, was quite interesting. So just to give an overview of the plot, um, it's set in 1953 and it follows an African-American family during the Second Great Migration who moved from North Carolina to Compton in L.A., which at this time is an all-white neighbourhood. Something I was interested to know, Billy, Mm. based on your research, Mm. is this based on a true story? I'm not sure about that. That's interesting. Okay. That'd be interesting to know. Um, the way it's framed is as if it is, it's, because it has a sort of intertitles yep. that say, you know, talk about the Great Migration, yep. which I assume was was uh, you know, based on fact, and then yep. yeah, it, it, is. it actually gives the names of this family, and then yep. says that this is this is the ordeal that they were faced with over ten days. Yes. So I assume that it was. It was based on fact. It was. I'm not sure. It was I mean, a recreation, but if it, it wasn't, it was. And if, if not, it's definitely going for a docufiction vibe. And speaking of the journey element, we should probably say it's obviously drawing on Lovecraft Country as yes, well. So Lovecraft, yeah. Lovecraft Country, and Jordan Peele's films. Um, so there's two basic elements to the series. First, the family moving in and experiencing various kinds of exclusion and degradation at the hands of their neighbours. Yes. Um, and also a supernatural subplot that only is really glimpsed in the pilot, but your sense involves... Well, it's well I mean, it's, it's ambiguous whether it even is supernatural. It's hard to know what a, it involves. It's a young girl's yes. dream sequence, for yes, example. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, look, what I found interesting about this conceptually, I feel that there's something really interesting about the way in which Jordan Peele has revived suburban horror for two reasons. Mm. So firstly, suburban horror is nearly always metaphorically about fear of blackness. Or there's that element, otherness and blackness are linked. So by flipping that and turning white people into the intruders or the outsiders, you achieve a kind of impotent suburban horror that's almost quasi-comic or quasi-ridiculous, I think, in Get Out. And I think a little bit of that is there too in, in this. At the same time, like I feel like something we rarely ever see, even now in American cinema and television are just representations of African-American middle-class life. So I think mm. that's something which is has often been missing from representation from the record. And I, I've often felt that the rise of... I mean, obviously, there are sitcoms and, you know, there, there are TV series, but for the main, it's not something that features prominently, I think, in American television. And I think in some ways you can read the rise of what we might think of as a gangster sensibility as about the failure of African-Americans to achieve middle-class status, not through any fault of their own, but because that middle-class status has always been read as white, as exclusively white. So I feel like this series is trying to think that through. So it's set at the cusp of American suburbanisation generally in the 1950s. It's about a family who are participating in the African-American waves of suburbanisation from the Old South to new suburban precincts. And it's also set in the suburb of Compton, which would you know, 30 years later become synonymous with gangster rap mm. and with inner city ghettoisation. So it was very, very heavily foregrounded, that that uh, image of the sign Absolutely. driving in. Welcome to Compton, sunny, sunny neighbourhood. Absolutely. And the process of suburbanisation is front and centre. So 
you know, one of the neighbours, a racist woman, when she talks about why she wants to expunge this black family, she has this nostalgic vision of when they first arrived in the suburb themselves. There were only four houses. The sidewalks were completely clean. You know, like it's like about how so much of what we see now in terms of African representation, gangster culture, inner city culture, ghettoization, comes from this kind of primal moment when African-American people were denied suburbia. Yeah. That, that's, it's, it seems like it's trying to think through that moment. Mm. And, and I don't think it always is always original in the way in which it does it. But I feel like, here's another way of putting it. I think for this series and for Lovecraft Country and for Jordan Peele, the very idea of an African-American suburban home or a middle-class home is inherently uncanny. Yes. And is, a, and is a source of horror or, or generates horror in and of itself. So... I, I didn't, you know, I know I'm a white viewer. I personally didn't feel that it was just pandering to kind of atrocity porn. I thought what it was doing was really interesting. Like it was trying to think through, like, what does it mean to think of a suburbia historically as black? As black. That's my kind of, yeah. yeah. But what did you think? I mean, it's obviously not yeah. perfect. I, I think, I think, you know, it's it's obviously first and foremost a genre piece. Yes, I it agree. It's a horror movie. It's yes. trafficking in those gothic tropes. It's yes. not a piece of sociology. Yes. And I think it's... You know, but those who who hold it up to those standards, I think, are mis, misguided. Right. Um, I think its depiction of white suburbia is very stylized. Yes, it, it's. I agree. Yeah, you know, the white white bread, you know, clean cut, uh, fluorescent, fluorescent, uh, you know, pale pastel it's white like, suburbia is 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 something from Tim Burton in some ways. Yeah, I agree. It's so, very all the, all yeah, the George it's, it's George very, Clooney yeah, films. It's very hyper stylized. It's very yeah. lurid. Yep. In its depiction of this neighborhood, mm. and I think that's that's clearly squarely placing it within um i suppose a lineage of, of, well, of suburban gothic horror, horror suburban, suburban horror yeah I yeah but of the more stylistic type hmm. um and i you know again we can't speak to the rest of the series but the pilot at least is does not traffic at all in violence in fact every any sort of violence is 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 purely symbolic violence hmm. it is thematic violence it's it's very it's very subtextual. Yes. So um, I, I, yeah, and it's interesting. Like you have the way it plays out is interesting. Like you have, I think it it really paints a really empathetic picture of the role of black women in suburbia as well. So a lot of the series is focused on. So basically, you know, the head of the household, um, you know, at, at that time in those terms, goes to work in an engineering plant, and the woman and her two daughters are left at home, mm. and you really get a sense of how claustrophobic it must have been to be an African-American woman or an African-American girl or child in newly minted white suburban neighbourhoods mm. at that time. And it's at that point that the second kind of form of horror, the supernatural horror, starts to come in almost as a kind of internalised white female voice. So the girl has a kind of etiquette book written by a Miss Vera, which yes. she starts reading and then comes alive and starts speaking inside of her. So yes. that, that I think, is really compelling. You have this kind of trio of women who, on, on the outside, have a bevy of you know mainly white women who are clearly determined to get them out of the suburb, but on the inside they're also faced with a kind of internalised reproachful white voice that yes. leaves them with nowhere to kind of go in some ways. And, and ends the film ends with a kind of gangster trope like it ends with the woman running out with a gun pointing at everyone like it's almost like it flashes forward to Compton in 30 years so there's a sense in which that that kind of gangster impulse stems from a refusal of white suburbanites to open up neighborhoods it, it reminded me in that sense a bit of um 
that David Simon series. I know you weren't as into it. Show but me a you, hero. Yeah, which, which you know, historically yeah. is about the desegregation yeah. of public housing. They make a major point about, Yonkers, yeah. about this family buying the house despite there being a covenant yes. saying that it shall not be said yes. sold to anyone with Negro blood. Mm. And that, I suppose, provokes a lot of the hostility mm. amongst the neighbours. I think this is really interesting in the sense that the way it depicts white people and, mm. and whiteness and the way it others yep. um, white people. And I think it obviously is greatly indebted to um, Get Out, Jordan Peele's so I think, so what the, the list would be Get Out, Lovecraft Country, I guess Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. And, and Us. Um, and Us. But, you know, the white gaze is so is so pathologised and embedded in the film. I mean, all that the neighbours really do to intimidate the people who've moved in the Afri- is to look at them, but they look in such an aggressive yeah. way. The women all sit out the front with sunglasses on as if to kind of reflect their blackness back at them. I mean, something else that was interesting to me too is like, you know, these series, they off- obviously fall into this camp of Afrofuturism, which, you know, if I understand correctly, part of the point of Afrofuturism is that realism is not sufficient to comprehend the history of African-American oppression. Instead, you need recourse to genres like science fiction and horror. And something that often happens in Afrofuturism is that the soulful black voice, the black voice which is acceptable to white audiences, is fractured and distorted. So a lot of the horror here comes from hearing soul classics and music kind of splintered mm. and distributed. And something that the neighbours do is... kind of ironic is, counterpoint all the way through. This yeah. Very, very kind of benign... Um, well, a palatable black voice to, yeah, kind of, to, right. to white audience that's at the time, right. the soulful yeah. black voice. And the neighbours do something similar. They they all bring out their radios and play what seem to be like black standards. But because the radios all overlap, it becomes ugly and jarring and becomes yeah. almost a kind of reproach. So the yeah. use of sound, I think, is really interesting as well. I think as well. I mean, I've heard, I've read a bit of criticism suggesting, who is this for? Is it for a white audience? Mm-hmm. Is it for a black audience? I haven't, I suppose, a, a bit of a reading there in some ways. So... So Jordan Peele's uh, Get Out mm. was partly partly directed in response to mm. his querying the concept of be- of a post-racial America in mm. some ways, you know, addressing the the underlying backlash mm. to Obama era mm. uh, cultural politics. In some ways, I think what's interesting about this is it's it's actually directed at I think a liberal audience here mm. who might be both comprised of black people, white people, and mm. people on on different right. spectrums. Suburban different. audience. Well, middle class in some ways, middle class suburban. In other words, the the Democrat coalition. Yep. In some ways, mm. and I think the kind of horror of the Trump era, in some ways, was white people, but in particular, discovering a horrific, regressive, racist kernel. Yes. In in their culture, a culture yes. that splintered whiteness along socioeconomic lines, and white people discovering they actually have a lot more in common with other people who live in there in the neighbourhoods than they do with people who live in the and heartland also, I think America. just like recognising the sheer extent of it as well, yeah. like the sheer extent of it Absolutely. which, which yeah. it pervades and yeah. permeates So in some ways I think this is this is a response to that and this mm. is a response to that fracturing of a kind of uniformity in the white gaze in some ways, yeah. the othering of white people for white people Yes, I agree. So I think, it's, I think it's partly just driven in terms of that, so I think the spectatorship of this is driven by people who are more likely to be of a certain political persuasion mm. than others. I think and I think also too just at a more banal level I mean both the showrunners are um, African American and it just feels like African American people thinking through the lineage of representation in the present like 
you know, the ways in which African-American people... It, it seems like the series' thesis is the ways in which African-American people have been represented or not represented in the present stems in some ways from this primal moment of attempting to suburbanise, mm. attempting to achieve middle-class status mm. and being prevented from doing so mm. by other... There's a powerful scene where they say, why don't they just move to the Watts ghetto? Why yeah. wouldn't you want to be with your own people? Exactly, exactly. So I think just at that level too, like it's, it's interesting seeing showrunners, critics, think through the way in which that mm. representation happens. But I think it's interesting to see, as a white viewer, mm. to see whiteness being othered in some ways. And Absolutely. when you see yeah. that, that depiction of whiteness, mm. it is not, it's, it's estranging, it's an alienating kernel. Mm. And it makes you realise the, un, the uncanny of seeing, you know, white people in rebellion against, mm. against a kind of, you know, postmodern future depiction of a kind of... And this was... That's, utopian society in some ways. And that's one of the things that I thought was powerful about Show Me a Hero too. Like that was the first time I remembered seeing on television white protest mm. against racial equality, like mm. in such a vehement way. So mm. the kind of the Catherine Keener character. Mm. So look, I think that's why that's a one way in which it's made yes. this quite ident- like easy and read, ready to identify with these characters mm. um, in the sense that there is a, there is mm. a sense of a kind of uh, enemy here mm. um, in the midst of the mm. body politic. Mm. Um, so, and look, yeah, at the same time, like I'm not speaking for black viewers, but I'll just say, reiterate that, you know, the showrunners are black, and it, it, it does read like black showrunners, African American creators, thinking through ways in which representation mm. has occurred or not occurred. Mm. And, you know, it's not perfect, but I think it's really interesting in terms of what it's yeah. trying to do as a series. I, I think, think this it's, is also a really fertile territory for, yes. for horror, as we mm. said with Lovecraft Country, as mm. we said with Us and mm. Get Out. I mean, just the, the sheer pleasures of identification in the genre, mm. um, aside from politics aside, it's just it's very powerful here yes, I and agree. very unique and original. Mm. And I think it's an original perspective mm. on this type of these type of horror tropes. And I agree. I don't know. Well, I found it, I found it very powerful and very. Well, it's almost like um, a it's almost like a deconstruct. I mean, it's like a an engaging deconstruction of horror tropes and then a re- and a reconstruction afterwards. It's like watching people deconstruct and rebuild a genre before your eyes in yeah. a way that I think is really compelling. So look, I'm. I didn't think all the beats worked, and I, I do think it's derivative in some ways. I'm definitely on board with the project, and I'll probably watch a couple more, and I'll certainly look out for the second instalment in the end. I mean, you've got to give anthology series a bit of time to get going as mm. well. Like, mm. you know, they don't always start strong. So I, I I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I thought this was actually really powerful. I found it very um, enthralling in some mm. ways, and I think um, the fact that it's a limited series, it's got ten, it's got a 10-episode arc, mm. it's very, made very clear at the beginning that each each uh, episode is based on a day mm. in the life of the final ten mm. days of this family's mm. um, inhabiting of this suburb. Um, I thought that gave a really powerful, propulsive edge. Yes, and absolutely for that reason, as amongst many others, I'm I'm in. I thought I'm, this was great. I'm in too. Okay, on to show three. So we're shifting now towards a comedy or a shifting dark comedy. Gears. Shifting gears. Um, can you drive manual, by the way? <laughs> I cannot. I, I can't. I, I have no idea what shifting gears means. <laughs> this is an interesting question to start off before we actually discuss this. Uh, is Made for Love a sitcom? So that's interesting, isn't it? What so, are the boundaries of a sitcom? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that because I, I have some comments about it, which I think we'll come back to that. So, um, yeah, we'll come back to that. So it's, it's an HBO Max series. It's based on a 2017 novel by Alyssa Nutting. It's a half-hour comedy, and the basic premise is that we have a tech guru who has discovered a way to implant 
a device in women's brains to measure their pleasure and especially their sexual pleasure to quantify orgasm effectively and it's a little bit unclear from the pilot but it seems like his well let, let's talk through what happens there are two strands of the pilot there's a strand that shows his wife his name is byron it's, and he's played by billy magnuson um there's a there's a strand of the plot that shows him living with his partner, um, Hazel, played by Kristen Milioti. Is she from Palm Springs? She is from Palm Springs. This, this feels very continuous well, with Palm same Springs. Location. Same location. Yeah, similar premise in some way. Similar premise. Yeah. So, yeah, you have a tech billionaire who lives with his wife in one half of the pilot, and in the other half she's escaped from his compound in the yeah. desert. And it, and it appears that he... Well, it's a bit unclear. He's definitely implanted something in her brain that measures her pleasure and quantifies her pleasure and his space his um his place in the desert has a virtual reality component as well the extent to which he's been keeping a prisoner and how he's been keeping her prisoner i couldn't quite get my no, head I around that's that yet to be determined that, that's unclear but yeah. but basically we we shift between her escaping into the desert and her quasi captivity quasi captivity yeah this um, tech utopia so i guess this this forms part of an increasing movement towards tech romance and especially yes. romances that revolve around doubling, time looping, different kinds of... Implanted technology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> different kinds of disruptions of space and time that contour romance in different ways. Even yes. a show like Russian Doll, you'd say, probably belongs to this category yeah. insofar. It's like it is a kind of time travel or time loop series, but in essence, it's a romance. So. Yes. There's something, I guess, about online dating and social media there. On the one hand, the sense of continuous repetition, scrolling through profiles, but also the fear that you've missed out on somebody that in an alternative universe you might have met. Yes. That, and it is very similar to the film Palm Springs, which features the same actress, uh, Kristen Milioti and Andy Samberg as a couple who stumble into a time loop, almost as a kind of extension of romance itself without any really clear cause or reason. Yeah. So. Um, this is fairly high-profile series. I was a bit ambivalent. What, what did you think about it? Well, I, I had read some rather mixed things about this series um, going into it, mm. and I think there are some things that definitely work about okay. this. Okay, what, what did you like? I think Christine um, Christine Milioti is yep. is fantastic. I think she's yes, she's great. She has a great um, way of oh, just deadpan delivery. She has a great way of yes kind of behind her eyes is a lot of where the comedy occurs just like slight facial tics and twinges i guess suggest a kind of alternative or different um subtext in some ways and, that, I, and I guess that works for a series on the one hand where she has to keep her true identity totally concealed when she's escaping that's right but also in which her true identity might be manipulated or she's trying to seem manipulated yeah. When she's, she's in the compound, she's so playing it, a double or triple it, it, game. It, it, in some it works ways. well with yeah. that exactly. And she she had a, she has a good deadpan. And she works well against people who are who are obviously larger than life comic figures. So yes. like she did with Andy Samberg in yes. in Palm Springs, and I think she she's does that to, well against Billy Magnuson. And, kind, she's good to kind of comic skepticism. Yes, that's right. The, yeah, and I feel, and it's only really suggested or foreshadowed in this in this pilot, she'll have good comic chemistry with Ray Romano. Yes. I thought that was a highlight, actually. Yeah. So when she leaves the compound, she makes her way back to her father, who's played by Ray Romano, who we see in a, a, another nested set of flashbacks. So the stuff in the present when she's escaping is very bleached. 
the stuff in the past and the compound mm. is coloured and the stuff, the flashbacks with her as a child with Ray Romano are really hyper-saturated. Yeah. So there's three different timelines yeah. taking place. I found, the, I found the, the way that they played with the timelines, the way they had these embedded flashbacks mm. was quite interesting and mm. it definitely maintained my engagement. Um, I have some concerns about how the duration of this comedy, how it will work, because it's very plot-driven, this pilot. You see, this is, this is a concern I had. This, this crystallised to me a particular kind of television style or comic style that I think has become more prominent recently that I don't have a lot with. It's, I describe it as movement without momentum. Mm. So there's lots of stuff happening. Like the, it's basically all action for the mm. most part, her escaping, things happening. But I didn't feel there was a really strong sense of momentum to carry it along. And in some ways, although it was high concept, in some ways it felt to me like it was a concept and not much more at times. I didn't mm. feel that they had... I mean, I do agree with you. She's got good comic presence in herself. And I think Billy Magnuson does too. He's well cast here. He's, yeah. he's good at someone who's snarky but charming almost despite himself. Mm. They both have good comic presence. Ray Romano obviously works really well in this mm. particular series. But I just felt like the comic texture and the texture of the world didn't quite land for me. I, mm. that's, that's why I said it's a lot of movement, but it didn't. Mm. I didn't feel it had rhythm. I didn't feel like it congealed in a way that I found really compelling. Well, interesting question. Did you find it funny? For the most part, not really. Mm. No, I found it eccentric and I found it unusual. And I, I found I, it kind of quirky rather than funny. Yes, and I thought... There weren't many just out, out and out yucks. No, or even worse, yeah, exactly. I thought it could have been funnier. So I agree yeah. with you that the three leads all have real comic presence. Mm. But it I was think the funniest scene was when she stumbled across Ray Romano in her childhood with, home. With the doll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's that's the closing scene. Yeah. So, so there's, there's some promise there. And obviously as well, if it, if it does revert to a kind of more classic sitcom format, again, the pile is possibly not the most... Indicative. Apt, indicative. Apt, uh, element to to analyze and so, this is this is what yeah. made me you know came back this i mean a sitcom is situational right and a sitcom mm. has to i think you know sitcoms are often a really deft blend between movement and stasis mm. so you've got to allow the audience to immerse themselves in the situation you've got to allow the situation to evolve and expand mm. whereas here it almost felt like each each scene was nascent. Yeah. Like they either didn't quite have the confidence to follow it through or they wanted to pack in as much quirk as possible. So as a result, you got these weird kinetic moments that I didn't ever think quite added up to something that was tonally or atmospherically or comically compelling for me. Yeah. And you, you have some really good bit players. So the Billy Magnuson character, the tech magnate, he has two sidekicks, both of whom are great. Um, I forget their names as actors, but they're both great comic bit characters in their own parts. The guy is from Veep, and yet they don't have a lot to work with. And it means that the dialogue often became about just observing what was happening or describing. It was expository dialogue, whereas you'd want to have the situation work on its own. I'm being very... It's very enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I I I just... just, Weirdly, out of all the shows we've watched this week, even though it was the shortest (laughs) and the fastest... It's probably the one I kind of felt most distracted or at times bored in, mm. I think, just because it, yeah, those reasons. I think this is one of those series that might work well as like a limited eight-part eight, eight part yes. series in some ways rather than an ongoing, ongoing sitcom-esque comedy. It, it reminded me so much. Did you see that Amazon Prime series Forever? I did not. With, you know no. the one I'm talking about, though, with yeah. Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen. I mean, that's also in this vein of time-looping alternative timelines, tech 
yeah, they said tech implants. But it, in a way, it does it in a. I think it blends it better. So without giving anything away about that series, there are radical shifts in the first couple of episodes. But nevertheless, each episode is almost entirely set in one situation, mm. which makes the shift. Oh. Sorry, I just, knocked, was... <laughs> I just knocked over my um, my microphone there, which makes the shift... I was gesticulating, which makes the shifts even more dramatic. Oh, look, you know, I know... The I, perils of over-gesticulation I know, in, over-gesticulation. I just, I, I just liked Forever so much. Um, so, look, and I know it's a different thing. It's going... Well, interestingly, Forever. Was Forever a limited... It was. It was. Deli- it, it, it was. Series it was, and this is too. All yeah. I'm saying is that that's maybe a good counterpoint because Forever pivoted very dramatically, very dramatically from yeah. situation to situation... But it did so, I thought, it showed that you can do it with a bit more dexterity. And it kind of backed itself and it's backed its audience a little mm. bit more than this does. I, I mean, this is, this is somewhat hedging its bets as to where it's going to take place. Absolutely, sorry, I almost knocked my... Uh, the microphones, really, Podcasting 101, do not touch the mic. The microphones we have are on really a kind of... The tripod, what's with them? But yeah, yeah, it, it is hedging its bets. Like, it feels like it doesn't yeah. Is quite... it going to take place in, the, in that tech bubble? Is it going mm. to take place in the real world? Is it going to be a, a satire of the tech industry? Is it going to be a romance? Is it going to be a family and drama look, involving Roy Romano? And it sort of has a little... Sort of has its cake in. Yeah, um, yeah. And look, you know, it sounds like the most cliched thing in the world to say, but it is a little bit jack of all trades. Mm. And especially that the problem with it's not exactly a dramedy, I'm going to call it a concepty. Like a, 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 the, the concepty the, or, or the con comedy. We, we've got to get that better, but the conceptual comedy. Very high concept. The, com, the com yeah. comedy, whatever yeah. we're going to call that. The problem with that is that sometimes the issue with the concept is that it it takes it 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 distracts you oh, it overwhelms the comedy yeah and and it kind of it has an appearance of doing the heavy lifting in a way that means that you you feel like you don't deserve the comedy or the comedy shouldn't be there so i just i kind of it didn't i have to say i thought all the pieces were there mm. and i was really looking forward to it and you know there's something to be said for a half hour show yes. they're rare now like a half hour comedy is rare from the pilot, I don't think the pilot did the show a massive service. Mm. I have to say, I don't think it quite came together mm. for me. I think I almost enjoyed it most as a piece of Palm Springs fan fiction. Absolutely, that's a, that's, <laughs> like that's a great maybe it way was to put part it. of the extended, extended Palm universe. universe. And I like that movie so much and found it so warm and comforting. And I loved her presence in it. And 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 similar similar desert setting as well. Exactly, I mean, I mean, this could well be set. I mean, Jason you know, to Palm Springs. Palm Springs conceivably deals with a million different desert narratives, yeah. many of which involve the Christ, Christian Meloti yeah, character yeah. away from Andy Samberg. There's yeah. like a couple of years where he doesn't see her. Yeah. So this could easily be, exactly, this could <laughs> easily be one of those side narratives in Palm Springs. So, and maybe that's it. Look, I mean, I, I like Palm Springs, but I, I didn't love it. So, oh, I loved it. Yeah, I, I didn't, didn't quite, I don't know, I didn't quite. You're wrong. Yeah, I didn't quite get it. I have to say, I didn't didn't quite come together for me. But maybe that's maybe that's why. Um, but yes, you're right. It it does feel like an add-on. It doesn't quite. Yeah, I don't know quite what it is. But just, I I know it's a bit of a mugs game to compare series. But I kind of feel like forever is in a way where this was going, or what it's an example of how it can be done. So look, I. I think I'm probably a provisional out. Like if I hear, if I hear, if you watch it, I hear it's good. I might continue. Mm. So if I hear, like if I word of mouth might get me back on it. But as a pilot, it didn't really no. sell me. Yeah, I think there's there's some things that hit, a lot of things that miss. I think just the residual charisma of the leads might may, might mean I'm yeah. kind of on the fence. Yes, 
But again, again, I don't think it sells the the series that with that great deal of a plum. No, that I it's, was hoping for. It's almost like it's, you know, there is such an art to a pilot. Like, I mean, getting the right amount of material in a pilot is terribly difficult. Mm. I mean. We watched the pilot for Big Love. I mean, that was a masterpiece of economy and a masterpiece of storytelling. I mean, it's such an art in world building and often contemporary series, you know, not to be grouchy old man, but they often just don't rise to the occasion at all. They try no. and put everything in, like a bit of a greatest hits like this, yeah. or they put nothing in. I think and I think there's got to be some sort of propulsive narrative yes, hook, which this doesn't have, I agree. or else like a real sense of different, discrete or disparate narrative strands, each yeah. of which has an element of mystery, or just a consistent atmosphere and tonality yeah. and sense yeah. of place. Which is, it just it can't just be a string of quirky events for me, no. which is what this felt like a little bit as well. Um, no. I almost wondered at one point whether it was going to be a global warming element to it, like the desert stuff. It feels set in the future, but th- that you didn't fully come together no. either as well. No. So, look. If I hear it otherwise, I'll probably watch it, but it's not at the top of my list. No, no. All right, so on to our archive choice for this week. And this week, it was the Netflix series Money Heist. Money Heist. Or Spanish. Billy, give me your best Spanish. I, I don't do accents. I find it, I find it demeaning. <laughs> La Casa de Papel. Ah, nice. Speaking of which, just sidebar, how many accents were there in The Serpent? It's like each person had a different accent. That's right. That was Accent right. City. Yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah. It was a, a real Tower of Babylon. Yep. Uh, Babel. <laughs> the Tower of Babel. <laughs> I had to say that. Yeah. <laughs> so Money Heist is an acclaimed Spanish heist drama series. Speaking of, I, I learned that from the, uh, I recall that from the Alexander Gonzalez in a Ritu film, Babel. See, <laughs> Spanish, it's all coming together. Spanish language, it's all coming together. Okay, keep going. Uh, it was created by... <laughs> Alex Pena. Now, just a little sidebar over here. So, <laughs> okay, let, let's talk this through. Let's, let's go Spanish language, Billy. Yep. Let's go your dexterity with Spanish language. Okay. So, <laughs> so from memory, <laughs> when we were backpacking in Europe, uh, we went to a counter, and you were you were, you wanted you wanted one of the things behind mm-hmm. behind the counter of a pastry shop. Mm. <laughs> I mean, when, and you proclaimed some some dexterity with the Spanish language. When we, I mean, and you said, "I will have." Un. <laughs> that was when un I rumble. Uh, another funny story about that trip. I was so bad at ordering. I mean, I was trying earnestly that I accidentally ordered my churros with salt on them instead of sugar. And for the next fifteen years, I thought churros were served with salt. I thought you dunk salt into. You didn't get it. No, I know. I really associate that trip with the Pet Shop Boys song Flamboyant. I was massively into it. I associate Pet Shop Boys Flamboyant with uh, Barcelona. So I think in summary, your your Spanish language mm. ended with the letter one. That was, that yeah, was it. Okay. Maybe didn't even start. So did you start watch this? Did you watch? Did you watch this without the subtitles? Oh, without the subtitles in the oh, original Spanish. Oh, of right. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> I love Alex Pena. And we, <laughs> and we had a bit of difficulty, didn't we? Actually, discerning the first episode because it seems to be recut for Netflix. Uh, yeah. So this was originally a Spanish Spanish language, uh, originally broadcast on Spanish TV, hmm. and was later. What's adopted. your favourite Spanish TV station? Next question. Okay. okay. Just wondering, as a as a Spanish television ITV, fan. I think ITV. Oh, yeah. Wikipedia again. Wikipedia open. So it was originally originally broadcast on Spain, and then was later uh, the rights were uh, acquired by Netflix, which mm. recut the series in a couple of different interesting ways, mm. and broadcast it on their on their platform, or streamed on their platform. So it's it's now technically over two series. It lasted two series, mm. and each tells the story of a discrete heist 
The oh, first, so, the, so it's like an anthology series. In, well, with the same characters. The same though. characters. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's a good idea. Yeah. It's hard to put together. So on Netflix, they've packaged it all into a series of parts and episodes. Yes. And you can't really access seasons in a regular way. So on the face of it, it looks like it was all released in 2020. But actually, yeah. it, dates, it dates back to 2017. Yeah. We've also um, should clarify that the... The archive corner is anything that that um, is older than twelve months. That's right. So yeah. you can have it. We can have a yeah. twenty nineteen series for archive Absolutely. corner. Absolutely, there can be some some yeah. things that fall you through the cracks. You were quite concerned well. about the rules there, but I think we can. That's okay. <laughs> I remember you, you got quite anxious about that, but that, that's fine. So yeah, I, I, there's a couple of interesting things about this. So the the first series takes place over the course of the planning mm. preparation, but largely the execution. Of a heist. I'm, just, the... I'm feeling really precarious about this tripod here. It's already fallen <laughs> over twice. Don't touch the microphone. Okay, I, w- I won't need to touch I it. I won't touch the microphone. It's not karaoke. Okay. <laughs> it's a stable standing okay. mic. I'm not going to touch it. <laughs> um, so this, well, I suppose what's interesting is how propulsive and quickly yes. this, it's like this a compre- It's like a compressed heist film yeah, in one yeah. episode. Yeah, evidently. So mm. so there's a lot of, there's not, you know, it's quite perfunctory and we're already introduced uh, to the, the, I suppose, the leading cast of characters mm. who all... Adopt the nom de plumes of cities around the world. That's a great. There's a great. I think that's a great conceit. That's a great scene. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's all narrated by one heist participant, and she goes through and, Tokyo. Yeah, Tokyo, and she goes through um, and yeah, introduces each character by the city name. That's really that's a really good heist conceit. Yeah. So there's while there's a little bit of preparation, I think a lot of this will actually come to light in mm. flashbacks. Yes. And most of it actually takes place in real time mm. in the course of a a heist on the royal. Spanish Mint, which mm. is an interesting space, mm. an interesting way of uh, approaching this. One of my favourite buildings in Spain. Is it? Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, Rococo architecture, you know. <laughs> so this series has partly been acclaimed for the way that it plays with the tropes of the heist, okay. the heist genre mm-hmm. in some ways, in particular the way it adds unique Spanish flourishes to the genre. Oh. So in particular, it's been acclaimed for firstly having quite a female-centric perspective mm. on the heist. So it is mm. largely focalised through the main character, mm. Tokyo. It's very all- Spanish. They're the women. <laughs> That's there, right. There are many women in Spain. <laughs> and secondly, I suppose the way it adds elements of melodrama or yes. emotion yes. to the what's otherwise a pretty terse, masculine, you know, just the facts, ma'am type genre. And, and this place, doesn't it, is a kind of perfect fusion of the heist and the telenovela i mean it's more compressed than a telenovela but the idea of the telenovela is a series of increasingly you know absurdly escalating consequences of one or two decisions works perfectly with a heist film and so you see this this is the logic of that a classic trope without spoiling the way this this unfurls Mm. is that one of the characters so the character this heist is organized by a character mysterious character known only as the professor Mm -hmm. who assembles a crack team of Mm. heist specialists who know very little about one another and he lays down a series of ground rules at the beginning uh, no personal questions you do not know each other's names and no relationships with Mm. one another and this is almost violated straight away by tokyo Mm. who enters into a pretty a pretty steamy relationship mm. with one of her co-conspirators, Rio. When Tokyo met Rio. <laughs> so, again, like this this melodramatic element is really plays itself out in this pilot mm. as Which Tokyo and Rio's play out as kind of star-crossed lovers and in I some think, ways. And I think the best heists have that element, right? So I think that, you know, the heist genre in some ways it's quite an austere genre. Yes. And classic heist films like, what, like Asheville Jungle, Reefer Fee, like they really work 
by totally embracing that austerity. Yes. But if you're not going to totally identify with that austerity, I mean, partly because of the killing, like Kubrick, partly because in an ideal heist, the participants have no relation to each other outside of their craft. That's right. So That's right. at its purest, the heist film is about a professional relationship. Yeah. What's well, the ultimate procedural, isn't it? It's the ultimate procedural. Whereas, you know, I think because that's the case... For the most part, heist films that aren't willing to take it to that extreme usually recognize, or heist series usually recognise that they have to compensate with some degree of either comedy or melodrama. So, you know, in a lot of ways, this reminded me quite a bit of the Fast and the Furious franchise. I mean, I think that I think that franchise is quite melodramatic in yes. its own way. It's very. <laughs> it's all about family. Billy. It's all about family. <laughs> it's very emotional, and it does have that slightly Hispanic kind of melodramatic quality as yes. well to it. So it's it's it is very much that kind of family quality here. As well, I mean, but, so many of the subplots are just classic tropes from melodrama. Yes, For example, absolutely. the bank manager is having an affair with one of his uh, fellow employees, yes. who's just discovered she's pregnant. Exactly, and, and there's, there's you know ten minutes devoted to that, to the, the kind of hysterics surrounding that revelation. And that, I think that's done really deftly. Like yeah. they integrate the kind of heist participants with the people who are in the building when the heist takes place really well. I mean, it is almost like a telenovela about a group of people whose lives are momentarily disrupted by a heist. Mm. And also, on the, on the other hand, about a group of people whose deepest feelings and longings come to the surface through a heist. I mean, all, all that said, I was kind of astonished at the pacing of it. So we mm. watch, as, as we said before, like there is this tend in a lot of American pilots and British pilots to kind of withdraw from the challenge of the pilot altogether and either present nothing mm. or everything in a bit of a kind of indiscriminate way, whereas this is kind of a masterpiece of pacing. Let's present something. And, and it took me, exactly, and it took me it took me by surprise. I mean, you start with a very brief voiceover about a, you know, woman talking about, the main character talking about how a, a robbery went wrong, you know, her partner was shot. Then we move to the first brief credit sequence. Then we cut to her being um, enlisted in a heist then we cut to the main credit sequence, and then, then it's the day of the heist. Yes. So at first I wondered, did we lose something by not having the build-up to the heist? Because that's, that's often the most endearing part of a heist film or the most affecting part. But as you said, the flashback stuff is there. Yes, and I think that will come more to the fore as some of these some of the narrators re- reveal themselves to be less than reliable as but, well. But also, there it does end. I mean, it is... It reminded me a little bit of uh, Spike Lee film Inside Man. Like yes. It, it does... It does reach an intriguing climax where the heist appears to be over, where the narrator talks about the twist that she and the other heist participants have engineered to make it work, but then a further twist occurs which complicates that. So it ends with a kind of... It ends at what's meant to be the end of the heist, reveals a twist and supplements it with another twist. So it is is really well structured. Mm. And I, I just... Yeah, the pacing, the economy... And the the way to engage your attention all throughout, mm. I thought was really, really fast, like really great. I think another trope of of the telenovela, which this incorporates, mm. is the is the slightly ludicrous nature of the plot. Yeah, it's and absurd. And, and, it's absurd and twists. And I, I have a strong sense that a lot of the things that appear to be random accidents yes. are in fact part of some grander design and, and by you, our kind of omniscient professor, professor. in some ways. So. Exactly, and. The professor is almost like a cipher for the narrative mechanics <laughs> the, the of the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The professor is the screenwriter. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like there was, it's interesting the way in which the heist is framed as well. So they start by talking about how the heist has to have good optics, yes. like how they want to be seen as Robin Hoods, and it's interesting. There's a real 
animosity against the salaried classes or against yes. the professional classes. So the, the the professor enlists the highest members by saying, well, you know, you've got to study for five months to do a heist, but people study for years to become professionals and even then their salary is not that satisfying. There's another moment in the bank vault where two of the robbers are, or two of the heist members are, you know, accessing the cash and saying, you know, we're nothing, we'd be nothing without the heist. We mm. haven't got any professional skills. So there's a kind of, there's an interesting comment there about a scepticism of the professional classes. And I, I wonder if that's going to be something to do with the overarching architecture of how it all plays out yeah well i think one of the other reasons why this was acclaimed was that it seemed to tap into the frustration yes, in Spain exactly. with austerity measures yes exactly with capitalism with i guess institutions organizations mm. hoarding capital while people yes, are suffering and exactly i think so it makes sense. it's the mint yeah it makes sense it's it, a heist on the mint in some ways it? i think what's quite interesting about this is it's almost like a it's almost like a narrative of sports people in some ways or sports people or singers yes. who are spending their whole life waiting for the big hit, mm. which will then pay, pay Absolutely. itself off. So, and I think often the heist film too, it's it's an affirmation of craft. Yes. So it's always people who are often working class or pe- people who aren't professional in a kind of middle class way, but who have crafts and attributes that they put to use collaboratively. So it feels like... And I mean, I guess that's interesting parallel, isn't it? I mean, the austerity of Spain, the Spanish economic kind of situation, and the austerity of the heist film kind of work well together or the heist genre so you have the heist participants respond with a kind of austerity of their own they kind of an even greater austerity in the way in which they produce it but that also gives way to a kind of melodramatic and comic element that's mm. really humanizing as well so emotional it works. surplus like apparently yeah. everyone in this yes. series succumbs to love including yes. the professor and so there's an incredible like overflow of kind of melodramatic emotional energy in this yes and exactly and it seems like that was the impact of the series in Spain as well. Yeah. Like, it obviously, it's been so successful, it really hit mm. a nerve. Look, here's the thing. Like, I'm not sure whether I really liked it on its own terms or whether it was such a fresh counterpoint to the kind of pilots we normally see. But Well, part of me wonders, did it have a strong enough hook? For yes. You? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, this definitely has momentum in a mm. way that, say, Made for Love doesn't. I have to confess, I didn't quite understand the twist at the end. I didn't quite no. understand. I think that was... That was something I thought could have been clearer. But yes. then again, the show is so propulsive. It's like, well, just watch the next five yeah. minutes of the... Th- and yeah. I think this series is, is one of those ones where I, I really enjoyed... I enjoyed it at the time. I really enjoyed it. Yep. I enjoyed it at the time, but did it have that, that real narrative hook that will pull me into the second episode? No. I felt like it didn't quite have that, well, that knockout punch. And it, it, it's like, it sounds almost like you're saying that part of its strength is also, in a way, it's weakness. It's so contained yeah. that... How can I put this? Like, it's almost like the only place it can go is a completely different iteration of the narrative rather than an extension of what we see already. So, you know, the heist is finished. The twist is about to come. It's almost like the second episode is going to pivot so dramatically 90 degrees that in a way what you've watched feels a bit redundant. Yes. Or something like that. So, which I guess is... Have you ever seen Jane the Virgin? Like I haven't, That's like that. I mean, every episode is so different in some ways than the one that comes before it. I guess the telenovela, it's about seriality, but not always continuity. No. It's so dramatic, the shifts that take place. So I get what you mean. Um, yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm curious. It's one of those shows I think I might come back to. I think it's it's almost interesting, more interesting as a phenomenon yeah, that's, in, in exploring rather than necessarily on its own terms. Because that's what I mean, yeah. It's certainly emblematic of the way Netflix is able to mm. 
to take what is otherwise just quite a local series, maybe it will make a bit of an impact regionally mm. and make it a, a global phenomenon mm. in some way. So it's an interesting kind of test case of the way Netflix can actually bring something that's quite location specific to mm. a to a global audience that's of sufficient mm. quality. I think they, they also did that with that German uh, sci-fi slash horror series, Dark. Yes. That's another example over oh, there. Yeah, the way they can bring sort of a local or regional... Yes series to mm. a, a global audience and I think that's it's interesting in that sense there mm. and I suppose obviously they recognise that having produced a separate documentary called The, the, the Phenom- Money Heist Phenomenon The Phenomenon yeah. that's interesting yeah and that would explain to you why it's been cut and repackaged in a slightly different way for Australian mm. audiences mm. too but it is very Spanish it is very Spanish um so look, yeah, I think I'm a provisional in. I mean, it sounds like you find it interesting as a kind of phenomenon. I'm, I found it kind of refreshing as a counterpoint. Yeah, but yeah, interesting either way. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's certainly, certainly interesting as a phenomenon and yeah. and a high quality sh- a series. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, and look, that brings us on to Pilot Club Archive Corner for next week. I've taken my cues from um, them. I thought we'd do the pilot of American Horror Story Murder House. Oh. So, you know, we, we, we've looked at an anthology horror, horror series this week. So I thought for Archive Corner next week we'd do the same. And this brings us to an interesting question. So I think that, not that I'm going to do American Horror Story every week for the next 10 weeks, <laughs> but I think for an anthology series where, where each season is so discreet like that, the pilot of each season must count as a separate pilot. I think that's so, probably fair enough. So if, if we were doing American it's Crime... the spirit of yeah, not the letter. If we were doing American Crime Story, for example, we'd think of the pilot of the O.J. Simpson season as being completely discreet from the pilot of the... Yeah. We'll put it like this. When the American crime story, when the next instalment of American crime story comes out about um, uh, about Clinton, yeah. we'll do that as a new Absolutely, series. Yeah, so I, I think, think... And and same with American Horror Story, if and yeah. when the next series yeah. comes out. So is Murder House the... The first ever the series. The first ever series. Murder House okay. is the first ever series. So okay. just because we've had that time with them this week, which is taking that anthology horror series in new directions. I thought it'd be interesting to go back to yeah. American Horror Story. Continue with your, your gothic. Continue your with gothic. Continue uh, with gothic the gothic horror, the gothic horror trope. Exactly. So I was, I was Continue on, with a lot of sitcoms. I was on a bit of a sitcom. <laughs> I did have a sitcom lined up for this week, but I was like, no, I think I just want to ride out this. I want to ride this gothic wave. Fair enough. So Fair enough. next week, American Crime Story Murder House. Cool. I'm Keen. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>